everyone. Hi, Jonathan. Hello there. It's Pesach. And you know what's nice about Pesach? That even when we're semi on vacation, I'm still bugging you. I'm still sort of calling in to say how you're doing. I'm like, you'll never be completely released and free. It could be like one of those little sort of movies where I'm hunting the Ephicoman in the house. And then I look behind <laughs> some shelves and there's your needs face going, hi, I've just sent you a WhatsApp. <laughs> it's like, no. Why? I've been waiting. Why did you not answer? Kind of. Yeah, yeah that, that does um, sound like could, me we, a little bit. We could recreate that vibe. Um, it is the holiday season. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm hope- I always used to use the Pesach period for catching up on reading, that kind of thing, books that had just been left by the bedside for months, suddenly there was a bit of clear time. Uh, And so in that spirit, I think this is a good time for people to catch up on things they might have missed, but we know they would love. So this is a conversation that we had uh, with Yuval Noah Harari um, back in November. I think one of the things that was, were so, still stick in my head from that conversation is the fact that what would, he said that in not a long period of time, about 200 years, maybe a little bit more, humans will not exist in the way that we uh, know them today, which is an interesting thing to think about during Pesach. He's such an interesting guy because he's obviously a historian and he's brilliant about the whole human past. But more and more he's thinking about where not just, you know, events are going to go in future uh, but just where human beings as a species are going to go. So we got into some very deep water with him. But I feel this fluctuation between him about whether he's an optimist or a pessimist. Because sometimes he says things that are really kind of dark, but there's this sort of cheery demeanor he has <laughs> and this outlook he has, which is on some level hopeful as well. So I, I found that a kind of really interesting, you know, dynamic in the conversation but when you're hearing him and you, or you and I are reacting to him is this good is this bad not just is it good for the Jews which is often <laughs> our default on unholy but kind of is it good for the humans uh, is what we get into in this conversation but he's obviously an absolutely first class global uh, brain and it's really interesting hearing him just really and sort of uh, unload I mean he, he was a very kind of freewheeling unplugged conversation I thought Mm-hmm. So let's listen in. Our special guest today, I think it's fair to say that he is the world's leading public intellectual. He's a historian and social philosopher, author of Sapiens and other books that between them have sold 35 million copies in 65 different languages. He is Yuval Noah Harari. Welcome to Unholy. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, it's been this, uh, I guess, almost two years of pandemic, historic elections around the world, natural disasters, probably one of the biggest companies uh, saying that they want to uh, admit all of us into the virtual world. So I assume someone who deals with uh, humankind on it's such a... It's just the uh, usual uh, stuff. It's always... Exactly. Like I was going to ask. It's, pretty, it's a pretty busy year, year for you, I would assume. Uh, no, I, I actually, I meant that this is how history always looks like. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> We are always thinking that this present moment, you know, things are completely uh, different. Most intense and crazy. Most intense ever, but this is kind of a very common feeling. See, I find that really reassuring. I'm very glad to hear you say that, because that was one of the things I was going to ask you about, is this whole angst that we have, particularly at the moment, and I was even going to put you in this, I'm afraid, for suggesting, you know, that our species is about to change in this big new way in terms of what you've been talking about, of hacked humans you know, part human, part machine with artificial intelligence and brains merging with computers. 
And this anxiety that it makes, certainly makes me feel reading your stuff that we are about to change. I was going to say, as you putting on your historian hat, is that actually something that the human race always feels at all times, that this is a moment of terrible angst? No, so we need to differentiate. Some things are really new and unprecedented, and some things are just the usual stuff. So uh, pandemics, uh, political crisis, elections, feelings that this is, you know, that we are on the verge of civil war, things like that. This is the usual stuff. It's always like this. But things like AI, like the climate crisis, this is really unprecedented. And in this sense, I mean, people often don't miss how really big these things are because they are swamped by the usual stuff. When you look at, I mean, there are so many things that you're uh, dealing with and so many things that you're uh, uh, concerned uh, with. I, before we go into all that, I do want to talk, uh, I think, a little bit about turning that idea of turning uh, uh, your best-selling book, Sapiens, into a graphic history, which, by the way, I mean, it's a very separate it's a very separate sort of entity. It's not exactly the book. It's something very different. It's not like the, the Sapiens and just with a few illustrations. It's a completely right. new book. Um, first of all, scientifically, things happened in the last 10 years since I wrote Sapiens. So it was a chance to revisit uh, some of the ideas and findings and, and so forth. But also, um, you know, it's, we invented a lot of fictional characters of, uh, we created a lot of new plot lines. So if we talk about the extinction of the big animals of the world, uh, it's presented as a detective story of like a murder mystery. Who done it? So we create mm-hmm. this fictional character, Detective Lopez, and she investigates the biggest crimes in history. So she's on the trail of the worst ecological serial killers in the history of the planet, who, you know, killed all the mammoth and all the big animals of America and Australia and so forth. And of course, she discovered that it's us, uh, Homo sapiens. And then also in in volume two, so she has another big mystery, another big investigation, uh, inequality. I mean, who's responsible for that? So she travels through history to try and understand who, who who is the criminal behind all these hierarchies and discrimination and so forth. So it's a completely different approach to how to tell history, how to tell science. And this is also what made it such a fun project to work on. And I noticed the artist really had fun with it too, because it plays with all different aspects of the graphic form, doesn't it? There's some that is kind of more conventional superhero comic. There's other, you know, it's all different styles mixed in there and you're playing with it. Exactly. It was a chance to play with so, also, with, as you say, with different autistic genres. And you have one page which kind of um, paraphrases the great works of Western art to present certain uh, events in history. And then you have a, a superhero comic. And then you have some, you know, old fashioned 1950s Flintstone kind of comic. And so uh, almost every chapter is different. How hard was it to decide on how your character is going to look like? Because you're a hero, obviously, you're a protagonist in that. I mean, did that take like forever? No, I don't like this illustration. Give me a new one. You're neat. You may be projecting here. You may be <laughs> just projecting a little bit. Just how a little you bit. would be if there was a graphic That's history a, no, with I you would in. kill the project. Could I be? I can't. No, it's not a good. I try to do it actually. I try <laughs> to say no. I don't want to have uh, uh, like my character in there. And we had a lot of discussions about it. 
Uh, and in the end, the kind of compromise was that, the, that we will have a character based on me on condition that I'm not the only scientist who kind of presents everything, but we'll have a group of scientists from different disciplines, some of them real people, some of them, again, fictional characters, to convey the important message that science is never the product of a single individual. It's always a, a, a communal enterprise. Most of what I know about not just you know, history, but of course also about archaeology and genetics and biology, it comes from the work of other people. So uh, we have this group of scientists, and also they, they sometimes argue, they don't agree on everything. Uh, and, and, and this was kind of the, the solution we found. One, one thing that interests me is you mentioned just then that you were going back to revisit the ideas in what I as a Brit would call sapiens. Um, uh, the, uh, and it struck me that in recent years, a lot of the things you're asked to talk about and you're invited onto stages all over the world is about the future. And here for this book and this project that made your name, it was obviously a history and it was about uh, the past. Do, but but in, in most of your current preoccupations and what you're thinking and writing about, are you more now this rather new thing, which is a historian of the future than uh, a historian of the past? Uh, my understanding of history is that history is not the study of the past. History is the study of change. Uh, we study change, how things change, how societies, political systems, humanity, how they change. We study it by looking at the past. But of course, we want to understand the present and the future. Nobody really cares about all these kings and battles that happened thousands of years ago. What we care about is ourselves. A history student here, so <laughs> I'm a history professor. I can honestly yeah, tell know. you that, you know, <laughs> most people, they don't care about this king or this empire or whatever. But uh, how they shaped family structure or gender identity today and what it implies to future developments, this is very interesting. This is really why we study history. So unless you connect history to the present and to the future, uh, you're doing only half the job. And, you know, history is, 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 is mainly about building also human identities. But our identities are not just about the past. They are equally about the future. So if you don't talk about what's going to happen, you also can't really understand uh, human identities, and you make it very easy for all kinds of, you know, populist politicians and, and whoever to play all these games with human identities, which has really nothing to do with science and what we know about how human identities actually develop. It's interesting you mention uh, populists and leaders, and I think in one of your Recent Q&As, uh, it was in the Guardian newspaper. Look at me plugging my co-host's newspaper. <laughs> uh, you were asked, what is, you know, tell us a secret was the final question. And you said, I, I believe that leaders don't actually understand the world. Um, can you, uh, the people who run, though, the quote was, the people who run the world don't understand it. Who does? Nobody. It's, <laughs> too, it's too complicated. I mean, every, you know, every person, hopefully understand their bit of the show. So mm -hmm. politicians, they, are, they understand politics. They understand how to make deals, 
how to how to gouge public opinion, how to win elections, and things like that. Economists understand to some extent the economy, how it functions. Biologists understand biology and, and so forth, but nobody understands the interaction between all these things and the big picture that emerges out of it. Well, that's a good starting point that nobody gets the full picture. But you mentioned about human identities, and our, our starting point was this thing about the angst we're feeling as a species. And I'm um, curious to know whether you think this stuff about whether it's genetic engineering or the bit that freaks me out particularly is our brains merging with computers somehow. And you can sort of see it with people walking around with the phone in their hand as if it's almost now another limb, you know, an extension of their body. Uh, And that, you know, digital man could chase out Homo sapiens almost in the way that Homo sapiens did to the Neanderthals. All of that seems to me, the thing I I feel reading it when I hear you say all this stuff is, is that a prediction by you or a warning by you? In other words, is this something that your study of change makes you think, look, it's happening and it's going to happen and we're just better get ready for it? Or can we do something about it? I think it's more a prediction than a warning. The warning is about what exact shape it will take. Given the technologies that we are developing, I think that unless we, we, we destroy ourselves, it's probably inevitable that we will change ourselves in a very profound way. Whether it's through biological engineering or linking organic bodies to inorganic entities, brain computers merging, or through creating completely non-organic entities like AI, or combination of all of the, all, all the three, um, we will change the very meaning of, of humanity. But how exactly we will change it, there are so many different options. And we need to make wise decisions because we are dealing here not with the future of a nation, of a culture. We are dealing with the future of humanity itself and even of, of life. Again, we, we talked earlier about this kind of um, being swamped by all these immediate problems and missing the really big issues. And what we are talking about is actually the biggest thing, not in history, it's the biggest thing in biology since the very beginning of life, four billion years ago. You know, history is nothing. It's just 70,000 years, more or less. But life is four billion years. And for four billion years, nothing fundamental changed in, you know, how life evolves. You have organic biochemistry, all life is organic, and you have natural selection. And this produces all these dinosaurs and and human beings and whatever. And now, within our lifetime, maybe, something completely different might happen. The emergence of the first inorganic life forms after four billion years of organic evolution And a completely new principle of evolution, instead of natural selection, it's going to be intelligent design. Because these new entities, they are increasingly, they are designed. They don't evolve like viruses through through natural selection. So this is really, really huge. And, you know, we we mentioned identities. So most of the arguments people have about identities, they're very small scale. If you think about something like nations and religions, the oldest nations and religions 
are maybe 5,000 years old. You know, Jews always say, oh, we are such an ancient people. What ancient? <laughs> 3,000 years? Or let's say 4,000 years? That's nothing, 4,000 years. You think about the rituals that define like my bar mitzvah. How many years have, uh, how many ancestors do I have who had a bar mitzvah? How, how far back does it go? You know, 2,000 years. Let's, let's, let's be generous and say 3,000 years. That's very little. The deeper part of my identity is the biological layers, which go back hundreds of millions of years. You want to talk about a ritual that defines identity. So bar mitzvah is nothing. But if you think about your first romance or your first kiss or courtship rituals, courtship rituals go back not 3,000 years. They go back maybe 300 million years. Dinosaurs had courtship rituals. But, but, they were, but that was painful. Um, but, you, but how will that, so how will all that change? I mean, how will romance change? How will, you know, what, religion won't matter anymore? Nation states won't matter anymore? When we're that the, the, sort They of, will matter. Okay. They will adapt if, if they want to survive. Religions are very good. Or at least the religions that have survived so far are very good in adapting to new technological and scientific realities. They have this spiel that we never change. We are an eternal truth, but they are completely different from what they were. The Judaism or Christianity of today are a completely different thing than the Judaism or Christianity of a thousand years ago or 3,000 years ago. You know, in biblical times, Judaism had no Bible. It wasn't written yet. Uh, certainly no Talmud and Mishnah. There were no yeshivas. There were no rabbis. Nothing of, of all this. It was, they, it, they, they had temples with priests who sacrificed goats and, and, and bulls to the sky god so that they will have rain and things like that, just like the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the other people around them. It's a completely different religion. It, over time, it learned how to adapt. Um, or to take another example, you think about the Pope. The Pope is one of the people who have learned how to use modern technology better than anybody. His power is based, to a large extent, on modern technology, not on ancient rituals and texts. Uh, in, you know, in, in the 18th century, the Pope was a nobody. He was the ruler of a small Italian uh, uh, state. And most Catholics in the world, you know, if you're the Pope in Rome and you want to influence Catholics in Brazil, you need to send a letter to the Archbishop of Rio, who then sends a letter to the Bishop of someplace, who then tells the local priest to say something on Sunday. And on the way, people can, you know, ignore it or, or, or change it or whatever. It's very little power. And then came radio. And the Pope discovered that he can sit in the Vatican and speak to a microphone, and hundreds of millions of Catholics in Brazil and the Philippines or wherever listen directly to him. He goes above the heads of all these archbishops and local priests and whatever, and this suddenly made the Pope one of the most powerful people in the world. So religions, they will continue to exist, but they will change their form and learn how to adapt to the new technology. On, on that thing about technology, to hear the three of us talking 
via Zoom. And people all around the world have been doing that, particularly in the pandemic. It now means that people can work anywhere and live anywhere, basically, because of remote working. And so I'm wondering, especially if the species or the human species changes because of technology, whether where people live begins to matter at all. And if it doesn't matter anymore, and I take what completely what you mean about how adaptable religions and maybe nations are, but in a way, if place doesn't matter at all in the future, why would there be nations and groups and difference? Because, or, or if there is difference, it will be organized on completely different lines, won't it? Mm. It could. Well, we don't know. I mean, space still matters a lot. Uh, we saw this during the pandemic also that, you know, healthcare, it's very difficult to get virtual healthcare online. If you need to get a vaccine, somebody actually needs to come and put something in your body. It's physical, it's material. Except the future you're anticipating is much less physical. Yes. Uh, isn't it? I mean, it's all about kind of our brains connecting via technology in a way. If we talk about after the transition, when we have these new kinds of beings who are no longer homo sapiens, uh, they are some kind of uh, uh, organic, inorganic mixture or completely inorganic, we have no way of talking about it. We have no way of imagining what the world would look like or how, how these entities would, would be. Uh, because even our imagination is uh, organic chemistry. It's, you know, organic stuff happening in my brain, firing and, and all kinds of hormones and synapses. And it's, it's still organic biochemistry. I, I can't, nobody can really imagine what it means to be a non-organic being or what a society of non-organic entities would look like. We have times, I don't know, decades, maybe a century or two until we reach that point. In that time, space still matters, and therefore also nations and borders, they still matter. You know, and, and also history never moves in a kind of, in, in a smooth way, that all the, all the movement is in one direction. You usually get conflicting uh, uh, movements at the same time. Like everybody's talking about AI and bioengineering, and I'm talking about it. And then you look around at one of the most important technologies in the world of the early 21st century is stone walls, which is a Neolithic technology. You know, everybody's suddenly crazy about building walls. And this is uh, such an ancient technology, and it's so powerful. Because, you know, if you live south of the wall, I don't know, between the USA and Mexico, so yes, you can go online, and you can talk to people in Los Angeles, or, or yeah, I mean, you live in Ciudad, El, El, there is El Paso, and then there is the wall, and then there is Ciudad, Ciudad Rodriguez, how is it called? No, Juarez. So if you live south of the wall, you can talk as much as you want with the people up north, but you can't get the vaccine, or you can't get basic health care, or you can't get this or that. So the, 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 this wall still means so much. And um, again, after the transition to, to non-organic entities, who knows? But, I mean, if you look back in history, there has always been this huge argument about the importance 
of uh, 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 um, the, the, the physical reality of human beings versus their cognitive and mental and spiritual capabilities. And you see it, for example, again, going back to early Christianity, the first Christians, which were, were basically Jews, they accepted the Jewish idea that humans are bodies. They are not soul, immaterial souls. And this is why in the New Testament, it's very clear, Jesus is resurrected in the flesh. And he promises to people that when the, that at the end of time, they will be resurrected in the flesh. And the kingdom of heaven will be a material kingdom here on earth. Then, under all kinds of Greek and Persian and other influences, the Christians adopted a very different view that humans are basically souls trapped inside a, a, an evil, a bad material body. And they began to fantasize not about some future bodily existence, but about completely freeing the yeah. good, wonderful, immaterial soul from the mm -hmm. material body. And then they came up with this idea that doesn't appear in the Bible, that after you die, you go to an immaterial place called heaven, where you exist as an immaterial being forever and ever. So you have this argument going back for thousands of years, and you see it also now, you know, with now this metaverse that, that Zuckerberg came up with. It goes back to, to the same question. Are we bodies, organic bodies, physical bodies that exist in a physical world? Or is the body um, uh, uh, a trap, a prison, and by connecting to a screen, we can escape into an immaterial world, which is much better mm -hmm. and free from all these ugly and problematic things of, of the physical material world. You, you know, you, um, I'm, sh I'm, I'm kind of pulling us back from the, uh, what we're going to become in 100 and two, or 200 years because I can sense that Jonathan's getting freaked out by this. So here, <laughs> I want to talk about the, the concerns of the here and now. And you, you talk a lot about, you know, on the one hand, you're really extremely optimistic about human capabilities and abilities, case in point, the COVID vaccine. On the other hand, you, you really are concerned about where we can go if technology and tracking technology specifically sort of accompanies totalitarian regimes. And, and you know, human beings don't tend to do, I think, you have the historic perspective, right? The right thing. They usually do the wrong thing and then they try to fix it. I mean, how concerned are you when you look at that kind of technology accompanying totalitarian regimes, where that can lead us in the very near future uh, of what, what can happen? I, I'm very concerned because, again, something new that we now experience is that for the first time in human history, it's possible to follow everybody all the time, which is, you know, was, was the dream of tyrants and emperors. And Jewish and, mothers, Jewish and mothers, Jewish mothers everywhere. throughout history. <laughs> but they couldn't couldn't accomplish it. It was impossible technically. Now it is possible. And it's not just totalitarian regimes. Um, you know we, know, we now have the NSO Pegasus scandal in Israel, which is, if anybody needed an, another proof that it's not just the totalitarian regimes that are creating this problem. Uh, so this was a very substantial proof. And um, it's, again, you look at the occupied territories, it's now feasible to follow 
two and a half million Palestinians, all of them, every day, 24 hours a day. And one of the things people don't realize, for example, about the uh, 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 Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the changes in the status of Israel over the last few years is that Israel is now much, much stronger than it, than it was 10 or, or 20 years ago. And uh, it's, it's seeming unwillingness to compromise or to negotiate. It's partly because it's much stronger because of the technology. If you want to control millions of people against their will, 20 years ago, it was difficult. Now it's much easier because the new tracking technology, the ability to follow everybody all the time and, and analyze the data in a meaningful way makes it much easier. Uh, whether in the occupied territories, whether in Xinjiang, whether in all kinds of dictatorships around the world to control a population against its will. This is really interesting to me that you've um, you've mentioned Israel and, and, and the occupation. I'm interested what extra perspective you get from, in a way, having this ultra long view when you say that even 5,000 years is a blink of an eye and, you know, the, uh, ancient culture, what ancient culture? You know, I like that. Uh, what perspective does that give you that's different in terms of how you approach particularly the Israel-Palestine conflict? Because... I wonder if, I'm going to mention, Yonit's heard me mention him so many times, but I had an interview with Amos shortly before his death, where I said to him, look, you know, you've been advocating for the two-state solution for 50 years, and it still hasn't happened. And, you know, doesn't that mean it's a failure, and shouldn't you be thinking about other things? And you're laughing, because in a way, that's what he, he laughed too. And he said, why this impatience? You know, your country, looking at me, said in Britain, there were wars over religion, and in Europe that took five, 600 years before it was resolved. And why the hurry? We'll get to two states. It may take 200 years. It may take 300 years. It doesn't have to happen in my lifetime. And, and he died perhaps a year or two after that conversation. And I'm wondering, with your kind of perspective, how you look at your own neighborhood and the Israel-Palestine conflict, do you, in a way, feel, ah, it will sort itself out, just give it a three or 400 years or millennia? Or do you feel some urgency because you're a citizen in there right now? Well, I don't think we... I mean, in, in three, four hundred years, there won't be either Israelis or Palestinians because there won't be humans. So uh, uh, unlike what you suggested that, that Amos Oz said, um, we just don't have the time. So, I mean, there the are bigger things happening in the world than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in, in this sense. Um, and I think that... I would like politicians to, and, and, and ordinary people to get rid of the language of eternity. Everybody seems to, speak, to be speaking in the name of eternity. They talk about the eternal city of Jerusalem, the eternal Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people will never forget, or the Jewish people will always remember. And the Palestinians saying similar things. You know, you know what eternity is? Do you know what never forget means? Never. I mean, the universe has been around, as far as we know, this universe, for 13 billion years. It's likely to be around for 13 billion years more. When you say that the Jewish people will never forget X, do you seriously mean that in 11 billion years from now, there would still be a Jewish people that will remember what you did to us yesterday or, or a year ago? Absolutely not. So, you know, kind of deflate the balloon a little. Don't speak in the name of eternity. 
Don't feel that you have the weight of eternity on your shoulders and therefore you cannot compromise or anything or whatever. No, it's, it's a very difficult conflict. It's a very painful conflict. It causes enormous suffering. Um, but it's a human conflict similar to many other conflicts that have been around in the past, in the present. And if you kind of uh, take this rock of eternity and put it aside, maybe it will be easier to reach a sane compromise. You know, what's interesting is that now Israel has really a historic shift and a coalition that uh, you can say was maybe... uh, programmed by an algorithm uh, called diversity, right? It's, uh, and, and the prime minister, maybe not surprisingly, is a guy from the high-tech sector. Does that make any difference, in your opinion, in all of this? To, to what? The new government, the way no. in which it was constructed? Mm. It's, you know, we see it in, in different countries around the world that in opposition to a populist leader, you get... Uh, they are often defeated, or uh, um, people try to defeat them, through new new political combinations. You see it in Hungary, for example, when the extreme right, the Juvik party, and the Mm -hmm. center-left, they joined forces to resist Viktor Orban. They managed to win uh, uh, the elections for the Budapest mayor this way by having a, a common candidate, and they plan on doing the same thing in the general elections uh, coming, I think, in the next year. I don't know if they succeed, but you see this pattern that because, you know, populism is not um, a clear ideology, populism is really just a method to gain control of power and then retain it. You say whatever it takes in order to, to gain power, and once you have power, you attack systematically any institution that might limit your power, whether it's the free press, whether it's the universities, whether it's the courts, whatever. So, it, so populism is not an ideology. It's really just a strategy. And uh, therefore, when, you, when opposing it, you often see that people of very different ideologies uh, reach the conclusion that if they want to preserve the democratic system, they need to, you know, in a way, fight fire with fire. Mm -hmm. If the populists have no ideology, they just have a methodology, just just a strategy to gain power. So we need to put aside the ideological differences and unite against them to just, first of all, save the democratic system. Once that's done, then we can get back to the messy ideological differences between us. Um, no, I'm still reeling from the idea that in three or four hundred years' time, yeah, I was still going to that too. Humans, <laughs> there won't be uh, humans. I'm still, I'm still on that, and I can't tell if you meant that, and therefore, and if you're therefore saying so, therefore solve it now, or whether you're saying, look, um, what you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict doesn't amount to a hill of you know a hill of beans in this crazy world channeling uh, Rick in Casablanca and therefore you know don't worry about it and and instead telling our listeners and other people focus on the climate crisis focus on you know the evolving nature of humanity because this thing is is real estate is a real estate argument that's passing 
No, it, it's still, as I said, it, it, it's in real time, <clears throat> it's still causing tremendous pain and suffering to millions of people. So we definitely need to deal with it. Um, what I'm saying is that if we put it in perspective yeah. and realize that we are, it's not that if you give up something, you're giving up, again, eternity. Like this is the, 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 the foundation of the world. You can't give it up. No, it's, it's just, you know, a, a, a nasty conflict between apes. And, um, and coming from that direction, hopefully, it would be easier to reach some kind of a compromise which will free energy and time and talent to focus on things like climate change and like the rise of these new technologies. Because certainly... Um, in, in addition to all the immediate suffering it is causing, this conflict and other conflicts around the world also are just an extremely dangerous distraction from the major global problems that we all face. Is there, when you look at these major global problems, and we talked a lot about AI and I think maybe shifting to, to climate change, something that you are uh, very much involved with as well, is there something, generally speaking, that humanity can be doing um, just on the most practical level to, to solve this? Because we, you say this a lot, that we've moved from thinking, from denying it to thinking, oh, okay, it's too late, we, there's nothing we can do. But let, is there something that we can all do? There is. I mean, if you ask what is the price tag of stopping the apocalypse, it's surprisingly low. Uh, it's not my estimate. I'm basing it on the estimates of several different uh, committees and panels of experts that reached a sort of consensus that the magic number is just 2%. 2% of global annual GDP. If humanity starting today invests 2% of global annual GDP in developing new eco-friendly technologies and infrastructure, this should be enough to prevent catastrophic climate change. Now, 2% of global GDP is a lot of money. It's currently $1.7 trillion. But it's a very small piece of the pie. And if you, if you look at what humanity is spending a similar amount of money on, yeah, the war in Afghanistan cost $2 trillion. Of course, over 20 years, but just by one country, the United States. Every year, uh, food, which is grown and then thrown away and wasted, uh, we spend about 2% of global GDP on that. On it, we basically throw to the bin 2% of global GDP every year. Um, if you think about, you know, the, the biggest thing is tax evasion. Uh, um, it's estimated that about 10% of global GDP is in tax haven and being kind of uh, uh, taken away from the taxation system by all these tricks of corporations and, 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 and billionaires. So we don't need new taxes in order to solve the problem. We just need to collect the existing taxes, the old taxes. Th th that's enough. Or to give one more shocking statistic, every year, Governments around the world give $500 billion in subsidies for fossil fuels. 
500 billion billion dollars. So in three and a half, uh, every three and a half years, the governments of the world write a check of 2% of global GDP and give it as a gift, as a present to the fossil fuel industry. Now, just take it and give it to the future of our children instead of giving it to the oil and gas companies. What could be simpler? I mean, the money is there. So yes, it's a huge sum. But when you look at, in perspective, 2% of global GDP in order to prevent you know, the apocalypse, it's a very low number. And you know, if there was a world war or if there is a pandemic, we spend much more than 2% of global GDP on fighting COVID. And COVID can't, can't destroy human civilization. As bad as the pandemic is, it's not an existential threat to human civilization. Climate change is. So um, we, should, we just need to do it. It's not so complicated. It's very, uh, that's very encouraging, I think. We had a really interesting conversation on this podcast a couple of weeks ago with Ben Rhodes about whether it's better to inspire people by telling them, look, it's possible, it's doable, it's easy, or whether it's better to you know, terrify people and tell them <laughs> that the apocalypse is coming. Uh, let me just draw you into something which you know, is such a big controversy, particularly here, it's a big argument, but it goes to your point about human identity and how human beings see themselves and your notion that actually some things that are going on now are without precedent. And that is the whole argument around trans rights and, and that whole area, and particularly... This notion, the bit of it I want to hear you on, is the idea of how human identity. And it seems to me that the thing that's new here is that human beings seeing sex as a category that isn't just about the body parts you're born with, but is instead a matter of self-identification. From from your, you know, we've talked about history, we've talked about biology, that, that argument, that view that sex is not Biology, it's about self-identity. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think originally it was simple. Um, Once it became increasingly clear that a lot of what people think about women and men and straights and gays, it's not biology, it's just cultural inventions, then scholars came up with this simple division between sex and gender. Sex is biological, It's objective. It doesn't depend on what you believe or what other people believe. It's just biology. Gender is the cultural, the social, the ideological uh, skyscrapers that people build on top of the biological reality. So, for example, to say women shouldn't vote in elections because women are not intelligent enough and they are hysterical and emotional and so forth, this is not biology. This is culture, so this is gender. So this was clear. Now things are becoming much more fuzzy as gender basically takes over sex and people starting to use the the terms interchangeably. Or even they, I, I sometimes even hear people talking about the gender of animals and not the sex of animals. And it became completely confused. Now, on the one hand, you can just say, okay, it's, it's a confusion. Maybe there is some kind of ideological slant behind it. But there is something deeper going on, I think. Again, going back to what we talked about in, in the beginning of these new technologies to change humanity. I think that subconsciously, maybe, 
we understand that now biology is up for grabs. The old division between sex and gender assumed that sex is, you can't change that. That's, that's objective biological. Gender, yes, that, that, that you can change. But with the new technologies, increasingly it is becoming possible to change also the biological foundations of, of the human being. And sex is just one example, but, but not the only one, not the last one. So I think that this whole debate about transgenderism or transgender people is actually the first, the, the, the opening fire, the opening salvo in the big battle about transhumanism. That the understanding that, hey, if you can use technology to change sex using hormonal treatments and surgery and, and so forth, that, that's just the beginning. And this is why it draws so much attention. That, you know, the whole world is on fire and people having these huge arguments about who can go into which toilets. Right. And on one level, you think, oh, this is people are just, you know, they're just stupid to, to, to talk about it. But they are not. Because, again, it's kind of the first shot in the really big battle about how are we going to deal with technologies that are able to change human biology in a fundamental way. So you mean that view that says sex is sort of immutable, it's just a fact, it doesn't matter what your opinion of it is, that's a, that's a flawed view. Sex is changeable, and if you identify, if, if, if somebody with male biology says, I'm a woman, then actually that's just, as far as you're concerned, that's, that's okay. No, no, no. I mean, again, it, the, I, I'm not an expert on this, so I, 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 I really, I'm not sure what I think about it. It's a complicated matter. But what I am quite sure about is that it's different if you talk about the past or if you're talking about the present and the future. If you talk about the sex of people in ancient Egypt or in medieval Europe, where they didn't have the technologies we have today, so this is immutable to a large extent. But what is changing now that we are acquiring technologies that suddenly make it much more important or, or feasible than in the past to realize all kinds of uh, dreams, aspirations, fantasies that you have about yourself and your body. You know, you have this, um, I think, in the, the Monty Python and, and the Life of Brian, in, done in the 60s or 70s, they have this scene that uh, one of them decides that he is now a woman called Loretta, and when they ask him why, and he says, because I want to have babies. And they tell him, <laughs> but you can't have babies. You don't have a womb. And, the, you know, they're fighting the Romans. So they are saying, and it's not even the Romans' fault. You know, it's just biology. And, and, and this is, you know, uh, and for, for, for the whole of history, this was true. I want to have babies. I don't have a womb. What do I do? But just around the, just be, uh, around the corner... Uh, it might be possible to have babies in artificial wombs. And this whole question of who has a womb and who can have kids will get a, a dramatic uh, a turn in, in the plot. So again, I, I'm not sure what I think about the philosophical and, 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 and question about, about the past. Whether what's the status of somebody in the Middle Ages who is in a, a, a male body 
but identifies as a woman. But in the 21st century, it's a completely different argument because suddenly what you want, what you think, what you feel, you have more and more tools to realize it. This whole conversation is um, making me want to build a time machine and go back to the 19th century and sit quietly. <laughs> I'll just take some penicillin from the 21st century. I'm not sit. sure. I mean, the, the 19th century wasn't fun, especially not true, for women. True. So. Yeah, so vo- voting rights and penicillin, I'm fine. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, well, first of all, at least we know what you do for fun, which is watch Monty Python. How do you, uh, can we say that you're on a um, on your way to med- meditation retreat? Can we say uh, that? Yes, on, on, on Sunday, I'm going on like in a couple of days, I'm going to a two-month meditation retreat. Two months? Oh. Yeah. That is unreal. And during that, I mean, in that, I've got, I've got to know this. In that period, what, what do, you, what do you not do? I mean, or, and what do you do? I mean, are you on? Are you does your phone and computer get switched off? Are you reading? Are you studying? In the first part, I, I volunteered. I, I helped to kind of run the place, so uh, I'm still in, in in connection. But then the second month, uh, it's completely in uh, uh, complete silence. And complete wow. disconnect from the world. So there are no phones, no computers, no books, no pens, papers, nothing. You're just there wow. with your mind and body. Where, where is this, by the way, in the world? Uh, in Israel. Ah, okay. In Israel, you found a place where you're completely disconnected? That's amazing. Ah, you know, it's a meditation center. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's near, near Kibbutz Dgania. So you can hear they, they have a, a party at the pool. So you can hear Omer Adam. That, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so is, not completely. But. It's so interesting. Cause, uh, but it's the I same actually, in India. You know, I, I, I usually go to India now because of the corona. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more difficult. So I, I sit in the meditation cell in, in, in the meditation center in India. And on the outside, you hear all these Bollywood hit songs and whatever. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to find a really isolated <laughs> place these days. It's so interesting that Yoni and I, I think, both assumed it obviously has to be outside Israel if it's going to be quiet. <laughs> no, because you said you talked about quiet and, and calm. Like, no, this place does not exist in this country. Um, but yeah. But I'm amazed so, about the no books thing. The no books thing astonishes me because I just assumed that somebody like you, you know, we build you, I think, rightly and fairly as probably the, the most famous intellectual in the world right now. The idea that you can live without books for even a week, let alone a month, astonishes me. Um, you need space in order to really explore the reality within you. There are things, many things in life that you will never gain from books. No matter how many books you'll read, you'll never understand these things. So books have their, you know, their place in life. I write books, I read books, they're important, but um, it's, uh, they are not enough. And to to really detoxify the mind and to be able to, to look deeply inside, you need to create kind of real silence, which is also silence from all these stories and narratives and opinions that, that appear on, on, on print, on paper. But you said there are no pens. So if you think of something, how do you write it down? You don't. I mean, I mean that, that, wow. that's, that's so- part of the point that... Uh, um, well, I'm not there to, to write something. I'm, I'm there to kind of observe, to get to know myself better, to understand myself better. And if you start writing, what happens is that the mind constantly comes up with more things to write. I mean, 
the, the difficult thing about meditation, at least what I practice, Vipassana, is that um, it's not peace and quiet, it's not fun. A lot of very difficult stuff comes up. Stuff that you normally don't want to deal with, that you don't want even to acknowledge that exists in you. And the mind constantly searches for distractions. So in normal life, something comes up, you, you, you pick up the phone, you call a friend, you open television, you watch something, you pick up a book or you read it. And uh, writing is also, I mean, we are very good at doing something. And writing is still doing something. But when we are told do nothing, just let things be, just observe what happens, this is extremely difficult. And any kind of opening you give the mind, like, okay, you can do one thing, you can write, <laughs> then all the energy would go, okay, I can write. So I can forget about all this stuff I don't want to deal with, and I'll just come up with ideas and ideas all day. And so, that, so that's why the silence. So you're not even able to talk about it. With, with, even with your husband, you can't talk about any, any of this. No, nothing. Wow. I mean, when you come back, you can, but not during the meditation itself. Amazing. And you do this once a year? Like take a break yeah. like this? For the last wow. uh, uh, 20 years... Since I, I began meditating, wow. so I have an, an annual retreat. It's not always two months. Sometimes it's one month or 45 days or 20 days. I mean, depending on... on but yeah, it's... it's um, I build my timetable of the year uh, around it. Wow. And, um, you know, we take such good care of our bodies and what we eat. And, and we need to take good care of our minds also. Do you think... Do you credit it with your success? Uh, to, to a large extent, yes. I don't think I would have the kind of clarity of mind and focus that is necessary to write something like the history of the world <laughs> if, if, if I didn't meditate. Uh, and also to deal with, you know, all, all, all the things that it, 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 it creates, all the uh, mm, mm, attention and, and all the, the interviews and, 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 the, and the expectations of people. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of stuff to deal with. Just on that, I, mean, I know we really should be wrapping up, but I'm just uh, on the attention you get. One thing interests me, in your new book, I think on the very first page, Tel Aviv is mentioned. And I thought that's an interesting choice because in a way now you have sort of slipped the bonds of just one national identity. You're a global figure now. And yet there you are on the first page reminding people you're from Israel yeah, and you're Israeli. An illustration and, of Kikarabima in the first page. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right on that first page, there's a little yeah. drawing of you right there. And, and you travel the world. And yet, I, I'm, so I'm interested in this. At, at a time where there's BDS and a lot of people are trying to shun and ostracize Israel on the one hand, and yet on the other, you are embraced all over the world and very clearly, avowedly, an Israeli. You know, you haven't changed... Uh, your name or anything like that. How how do you think those two things sit, and and how do people receive you as an Israeli? Do you find I, with one or two exceptions, I never had any issues with that. And you know the the, the books are being translated and sold uh, uh, illegally in places like Iran, uh, and Iraq, and I we get we get a lot of I get a lot of fan mail from from these places, well, and. Um, you know, it's. I, I, I talk about other stuff. Um, everybody comes from a particular nation, but we are also all on the same planet, 
And, you know, you have enough thinkers and, and leaders who talk about national issues and local issues, and that's important. Of course, we, we need that. But we also need people who come from the perspective of, of, the, of the whole of humanity and of the planet. And um, they can come from anywhere. And, you know, I, I hear a lot about all this BDS and anti-Semitism and, and whatever. I hardly ever experienced it uh, uh, myself. We thank you so much for this uh, conversation, Professor Yuval Harari. I think we feel, uh, uh, we feel smarter. <laughs> And we uh, wish you uh, a great uh, retreat with a lot of uh, interesting things going on in your head. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you for making history cool. We're not going to let our children hear the bit where you said you can't learn everything from no, books. No, no, we're going to not. They're not going to listen to that. You can learn we'll, we'll everything from books, especially yours. Um, no, it's been wonderful speaking with you, um, Yuval Noah. Thank Thanks you so, so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that was Yuval Noah Harari. I always think that there aren't too many people in the world who are able to sort of have that bird's eye view and touch upon so many topics with really just go in depth and with their, his own insights and reveal his secret for having ideas, which is just to disappear and not talk for two months. Um, should we try should that? should have tried we, that. <laughs> why don't we try that? You and me. Why don't we see if we can submit ourselves to is that Harari treatment? Is this like a subtle treatment? British way of telling me that I should just shut up for two months? I think that's I what we. it was. No, but you thought you. you. You thought you. It was first person plural. It wasn't second person. <laughs> um, if you've enjoyed that, we have another treat for you next week. Um, so do stick with us and join us then. In the meantime, hope you're having a good Pesach. You, your neat, and people listening. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach.